Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how did a woman who died in direct provision come to be buried without ceremony? To be honest, I've struggled a little bit with how to introduce um, this episode of The Explainer, because as an editor and as a broadcaster, I know how difficult it is to engage audiences in conversations about direct provision. But I think this is more a story about how we deal with death in this country as well. That final journey is something that we all store so much importance in. Sometimes it's in a religious way, oftentimes it's not. Anyone who has had people close to them die knows that there is a certain comfort in the rituals we perform. There's love in the sandwiches we make. There's happiness in the stories we tell. Those hours and days after we lose someone, we mark their existence, their place, their contribution their love, their life. And it makes you question what happens if that can't happen. War and conflict often take that opportunity away from people. Violent deaths do. It's why you hear many families plead for the return of bodies of murder victims. It's to give them that dignity in death. But what happens when that doesn't happen because of decisions taken by the state? And that's something that we learned happened in Ireland in the last few months in the Silva Tequila case. There were people who wanted to mark Silva's life, they wanted to mark her death, and they couldn't. To hear more about this story and to explain exactly what happened, I'm joined in studio by the Journal.ie reporter Conal Thomas, who broke many of the details about this, and Nick Henderson from the Irish Refugee Council, because Silva's story also highlights a lot about what happens in the direct provision system in Ireland. Uh, Conal, Can you just explain um, to me and to all of us who Silva was and what happened to her? Sure. Um, Silva was a transgender woman who lived at the Great Western House Direct Provision Centre in Galway City. Um, She was originally from South Africa um, and in around June 2017 she became quite active with the local Galway LGBT group Amach. Um, She's described by her friend Cameron Cairn as having an infectious personality. In August last year, Silva was found dead at the Direct Provision Centre where she was living. In the months following her passing, Angarda Shilkan, with the assistance of Interpol, attempted to locate Silva's next of kin. In a Facebook post last week, and this is really where the story begins, Amok, the LGBT group who had befriended Silva during her time in direct provision, said that despite assurances from the state that they'd be notified when her remains would be released, they were actually informed that she'd already been buried without ceremony and with no notice to friends or fellow residents in Galway. So the first part of investigating exactly what happened was to contact Amok. They, the group themselves, were obviously extremely upset by this and, and cautious about speaking to a reporter, although they were confident that what had happened had actually taken place. So it was kind of my job to firm up those details and the claims that she'd been buried alone with no notice to friends and without ceremony. Despite them receiving assurances that they would be told and that they would be able to give her, like we were speaking about, that important farewell. Exactly. I contacted a number of people who knew Sylvia in Galway to try and kind of firm up the details to pinpoint exactly what happened. But there, was, there wasn't there was a whole lot of information coming out. Um, Do we it, know how long Silva had been living in Galway? When had she arrived in Ireland? We don't exactly. No one seems to be quite clear and, and and this is probably perhaps one of the things about direct provision. It's, it's unclear when she actually arrived in Ireland. What we do know is that she became friends with a lot of people in the market about June 2017. So just over a year before she passed away of natural causes in the direct provision centre. But Amok themselves were in the dark about exactly what had happened. They hadn't officially been contacted by the state about about her burial. Um, so there's little information available. Um, I contacted the department and... To be honest, I wasn't really sure what response I'd, I'd receive because generally when you're dealing with government departments, they tend to be not that, not that forthcoming, particularly when it comes to individuals. 
um, and private information. But they had told me earlier in the day that they're putting together quite a lengthy response. So I suppose that for me indicated that okay, it looks like this this might be the case. And they were. it's very unusual to get that kind of assurance from a government department. Um, so when I got the response, it became quite clear what happened. What happened was that um, the Department's Reception Integration Agency, which administers the direct provision system in Ireland, had been in contact with the Guardian in relation to Silva's burial. This was in March, late March 2019, to get an update on the release of her remains so that her friends in Amok and her, her contacts in, in her her colleagues in Galway could um, have a ceremony for her and um, bury her with dignity. Um, the guardie told Rhea that a request should be made at the superintendent's office to have her remains released for burial. And this request was made on the 4th of April and on the 17th of April. And a reminder was sent by Rhea to the superintendent's office of the guardie on the 3rd of May. However, an update from the, the superintendent's office was received by Ria on the 21st of May, so this is nearly two and a half weeks later, and stating that, and I'll quote, all avenues had been exhausted for contacting Ms. Takula's next of kin and that the decision to release her remains now rested with the coroner's office in Galway. So Ria then contacted the coroner's office who advised officials to contact the university hospital in Galway and upon contacting the hospital, Ria were told that Silva had actually already been buried on the authority of the coroner, without a ceremony and without any of her friends in Galway having been contacted. And do we know where she was buried, Connell? Is there a, is there a place that people can visit? Um, we do. Uh, Silva's now buried in a small HSE-owned plot in Bohemore Cemetery, just outside Galway City. There's a, quite a visceral reaction when you think of someone being buried without the people who love them around. Um, and I think that's why this story has shocked a lot of people. Silva's not the first person, though, in the state who would be buried... On her own, what is the usual state of affairs if someone, say, doesn't have family, doesn't have next of kin, doesn't have friends who can look after a burial? What happens then? So, yeah, as you say, if they've no immediately identifiable next of kin um, and the guardie can't track them down, generally what will happen is the Department of Social Protection will provide a plot and will cover the costs of burial, which did happen in Silva's case. But I think the, the, the crux of this is that the state perhaps failed to realise that there were friends and colleagues who wanted to bury Silva, wanted to have a ceremony. And I think the really important point to make is that in the state's eyes, unless your family, it seems, you will be left to the state then to be buried. And so the state actors in this case and the departments, through miscommunication, failed to realise that there were friends who considered themselves Silva's family and who Silva considered her family here in Ireland. And I guess this becomes, Nick, a direct provision stories in some way because the state is so involved, centrally involved in people's lives when they are in direct provision. Yeah, very much so. The state provides accommodation. They do so through private contractors. There's around 39 direct provision centres across the country and the vast majority of which are, uh, nearly all in fact, are delivered via private operators. But nevertheless... Uh, despite them being owned by, delivered by private actors, there's a huge responsibility um, in law uh, on the state to ensure that what happens inside those centres meets people's basic human rights. So what does happen inside those centres? Just to bring us back to basics and explain a little bit about how direct provision works from the moment someone comes here seeking asylum. So the idea around direct provision was 18 years ago, the state realised that people were coming to the country to seek asylum. And rather than those people 
going into social housing or even made homeless, some sort of provision would be made for them. Uh, and over the last 18 years, it's grown to a point where at the moment there are around uh, 6,500, more than 6,500 people in direct provision across 39 centres. It's bed and board in effect. So you would receive uh, a bed, often with other people, people you may not have met before. Um, you, in the majority of centres, you would receive food. You cannot cook for you. There's no facilities to cook for oneself. And these uh, centres are often uh, in quite remote places, dislocated from local communities. If you've just literally arrived in Ireland, you would be, the idea would be, it's not been so in recent months, but the idea would be that you'd go to Belseskin Reception Centre, which is in the north of Dublin, and there you would receive uh, some sort of basic induction into the asylum process and what you're about to experience. Uh, in more recent months, there's been a very, very alarming phenomenon which the journal and Conal in particular has covered in detail around emergency centres. So the idea that the direct provision of state is, is in effect full. Uh, there's been a narrowing uh, between the actual contracted capacity and the occupancy. And you can see that if you look at the graph that's available on the, uh, as part of the Reception Integration Agency's statistics, uh, the two lines have become closer and closer together over the last 10 years. And so at the back end of 2018, beginning of 2019, it came to a point where there was literally no capacity left. And the state... Uh, has now contracted bed and breakfasts, small hotels around the country, and people would be accommodated directly in those places, uh, possibly not going via Belsess and Reception Centre. Is that increase in the number of people because more people are coming here? There's, I think we would say there's three reasons. Firstly, there has been an increase in the number of people seeking asylum. You can, you can see that in the figures. It's not um, a huge increase. Uh, it's certainly not an increase we would say that should result in this situation. If you take the annual average of over the last 10 years, we would receive around 2,200 people claiming asylum. Secondly, a key problem has been the fact that decision-making is slow. And that results in the, that's due to the fact that uh, two years ago, we introduced a new law and people at different stages of the system were brought right back to the beginning of the, the process. And if you claimed asylum tomorrow, you would probably not be interviewed unless your case was prioritized. You wouldn't be interviewed for around one year. So there's more people in the system waiting longer. And then finally, if you do get refugee status or subsidiary protection or permission to remain, it's become harder to leave direct provision from the housing crisis. And there's something like 700 plus people in direct provision because of that. So there's 700 people who are actually legally, um, their status is is to be allowed to be in Ireland, but they're actually still in this limbo of direct provision because they can't find accommodation. Colin, one of the things that you were working on previous to, to this story coming out was um, that within direct provision, Nick has um, spoken a lot there about some of the issues, but one of the things that has changed in the last years is that we used to see how many people died while living in direct provision and we don't see that anymore. Um, why is that? It's unclear, frankly, but I just lay it out a little bit. The department used to release figures for those who had died in direct provision, mainly through the Freedom of Information Act. They would collate statistics and they would give breakdown of the year and the number of people who died. 
they are no longer released by the department. And I think this raises questions around the transparency within the system. So while it looked previous that they did, the department did record and release figures for deaths and direct provision, it's it stopped doing so in 2017. Earlier this year, I put in an FOI requesting the number, figure each year breakdown of how many people had died within the system while being accommodated within direct provision systems since 2003, and that was refused. Fianna Fáil's justice spokesperson Jim O'Callaghan submitted a PQ along the same lines. That was also refused. The reason given was that the department said that it does not hold these figures and that it, it is the, the remit of the coroner's office and the general register's office where these figures would be. I suppose the, it, Silva's case and the fact that they're not releasing these figures raises the issue of transparency because it, it, it doesn't look good for anyone if these figures aren't released. And I suppose, Nick, one of the things that you had kind of mentioned was perhaps putting in place a framework for registering and and, and having these figures available. Yeah, exactly. And can I just extend condolences to the friends of Silver in Galway and Ireland? I never met Silver, uh, and I'm very aware of what Amak said last week, which was that her death and circumstances around it shouldn't be made uh, political. Um, so I have that in mind very, very clearly. And what we say is really around improving the system going forward and what can be learnt from this this very sad situation. And we'd have several recommendations around improvements. Firstly, uh, it's useful to draw comparisons with what happens if somebody dies in prison. And then the, there, there would be a coroner's investigation an inquest, but also the inspector of prisons conducts the investigation. And from speaking to colleagues working in in that sector, uh, the inspector's investigation is useful. It's faster, can be faster than uh, the coroner's inquiry or the inquest. It can result in systematic recommendations around what improvements can be made to the system. It's fair and crucially, it engages with family. And these reports are public, they're anonymous, but they're publicly available on the inspector's website. So there's something definitely we would submit to be learned from that process around having some sort of investigation into a death that looks at what can be learned around how to improve a system. And surely, as uh, Connell says, this would be to the benefit of the Department of Justice to improve transparency, um, to consider if the cause of death was natural causes or... Which it was was in the case of Silva. That was the coroner's verdict. Or whether there was something around the system, uh, around her accommodation, around the care or not that she received that contributed to that person's death. That seems to be just fundamentally important. The whole thing about Silva's case is that there was miscommunication or rather no communication between different state agencies. Although the department might say, well, it's the coroner's office. I mean, do you think there's scope for actually, you know, creating an inclusive framework? There must be. And let's remember as well that the several of the agencies, three of the agencies involved are all under the aegis of the Department of Justice, the Reception Integration Agency and Garda Shia and the Coroner's Service. And so this unfortunately points to, is a good example, 
uh, of that department working poorly together. And we would see this in other other parts of the asylum system. I was going system. to ask, uh, is it an example of how lots of things, so obviously death is such an important part of, of life and how we continue to live our life after someone dies, but is this an example of how the whole system works? It would be an example of the Department of Justice, which has at least five bodies all working at different parts of the asylum procedure. The Protection Office, the Appeals Tribunal, the Ministerial Decisions Unit, the Legal Aid Board, the Garda National Immigration Bureau. If you're in the asylum process, you will touch on those institutions at some point. And we would say that often they don't work coherently together. Whether the reform of the Department of Justice process, which is ongoing, identifies this remains to be seen. Um, it also, this sad situation also points to the need, I think Conal mentioned it, around the idea of um, departments being sensitive, you know, and institutions being sensitive. It, there may, if the person doesn't have next of kin, are there people who sh- that person has met over a period of time that would like to be involved in the memorial process and the funeral process? And this seems to have been clearly articulated at various times to different institutions. And I think that's one of the things that struck me reporting on the story I was speaking to one of Silva's friends in the Great Western House was how he and a number of other residents feared that this could happen to them yeah. if they met the same situation, if the same, if they passed away in direct provision. And there's lots of examples of how that happens outside of direct provision where people go to great lengths to make sure that people aren't on their own in, in burials. Course, yeah. We had an example of a story in Galway a couple of years ago where an authority in the UK had actually put out an advertisement in a local paper in Galway to ensure that somebody was found from his area to, so that he wouldn't be buried by himself in England, mm. um, which is quite a stark difference to what happened the other way around. This woman from South Africa who lived in Galway. A relatively small place and with a number of very good friends who would have been close by, who could have easily been contacted. Yeah. Um, now, I do know that the, the minister, uh, David Stanton, has mm. said on in the Doyle that he was... Um, his, his statement is quite strong in, in that he um, said it was a matter of profound regret as to what happened. We really very much hope that this brings changes to the system. And also, I think, in terms of preventing issue situations like this, uh, particularly around healthcare, there's things that the state should be doing and they're not. We transposed into Irish law the Reception Conditions Directive last summer, which is a piece of EU law which says how member states should accommodate people. That requires a vulnerability assessment to be conducted to see if somebody has special reception needs. That's not happened. Somebody has a right to health care under that law, uh, which means that somebody should be receiving necessary mental health care, identifying with the vulnerable and what associated mental health care should be given. Um, it should also involve the the minister what, when he sends somebody to a direct provision centre, considering whether that centre is appropriate to somebody. They have to consider gender concerns. Um, so there's uh, there's a there's a piece of law that is on the statute books, and unfortunately, it's either not being implemented in the in the in terms of an assessment or its implementation is incomplete. In, you, you mentioned that's European law, law. Connell, what happens in other countries in terms of the asylum seeking of international well, people? I, I suppose the, 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 the uniqueness, I suppose, of the direct provision system is that while it, it's better than, say, the US system where it's essentially detention centres, unlike Canada and other European countries, 
People living in these centres are essentially cut off from Irish society. They are largely isolated to most of these centres. While there are examples of integration, and I would say, you know, you hear a lot about some direct provisions are a lot better than others. By and large, people are cut off and they are, it is, it can be years before they are even allowed to integrate or attempt to integrate into Irish society. Yeah, and we were often asked what good examples are there elsewhere, and there, there aren't many. Uh, yesterday, the academic Liam Thornton was in front of the Justice Committee uh, as part of their ongoing pro- investigation into direct provision, and he made that point. Uh, but ultimately, that's not really the issue here. We're, we're a republic. Um, we should be able to have an asylum process uh, that respects people's human rights. Um, and as I said at the beginning, and I don't want to make numbers an issue, but we do have a very manageable number of people seeking asylum, we would say. Um, so, yeah. So that that's, I guess, is there are a lot of conversations for the future and not making Silva's death um, a political football like people want to do. But I think her case highlights a lot of um, what happens within direct provision, um, the good and the bad. I think there's a lot of good being highlighted there with the work that she did do in Galway. And I think we should remember that here as well. Absolutely. Um, She was very well loved. And I think that's what makes this case so sad is that she had many dear friends in Galway who would have loved to have given her a proper ceremony and and burial, an appropriate burial. Thanks so much for your story on this, Conal, and for coming into us in The Explainer. And thanks so much, Nick. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. This episode was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. Thanks to Conal and Nick for their work on this story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. In the meantime, check out some of our other episodes. Last week, we looked at the scoring of Katie Taylor's fight on the 1st of June. There are also episodes on the undefeated Healy Rays, the new heartbeat bills in the US, why there won't be an EU army, Patrick Quirk's conviction and measles and vaccinations in Ireland. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time. Thank you.